many companies will say, you know, our employees are our biggest asset and we, we want to take care of them and make sure they're okay. But at the end of the day, that's, as you've mentioned, that's not necessarily even true. So it may be something that they talk about, but when, when the rubber hits the road, that's not the real issue. The real issue is the bottom line, or as you say, just getting them in, bums on seats, and then, you know, presenteeism and absenteeism will be an issue. Hi, my name is Vindya V. This is Art of the Extraordinary, the podcast for those of you who's ready to play a much bigger game and leave an extraordinary legacy behind. I'm glad you're here and it's time to make your quantum leap. Now today I have a very special guest. Today I am joined by the co-author of the book, 11th Habit, Hanley Van Wyck. Now, if you haven't listened to the book or read the book, I highly recommend it. Whether you are working in a job, whether you are in a leadership role or whether you have employees under you and you own your own business, this is a great read to have. Hanley currently works as head of research and habit change at the Behavioral Research and Applied Technology Laboratory. It is also known as Brett Lab in Chicago. Now, Hanley's obsession with human behavior started while growing up in South Africa, from working to prevent hate crime to humanize the workplace. Her career spans three decades and across three different continents. So you can tell that you are in for a great treat. In this episode, Hanley shares her expertise in what habits create great high-performing cultures, whether you are in a leadership role or looking to build a great culture or working as a part of a company, this episode will surely bring some great advice on what makes good companies great. We talk about a lot of stuff starting from teams to uh, teams that are very small in smaller companies where you haven't really built a culture per se to enterprises that is that has thousands and thousands of employees. How do we apply this differently? And the kind of the surprising things that they found in their research, which led to writing the book 11th Habit. So without further ado, let's jump into our chat. Well, it has been a very long journey. I started off um, in psychology many, many moons ago and at the time uh, finished my honours degree and was a little bit dissatisfied with where psychology was at the time, which was very focused on dysfunction. Positive psychology hadn't really um, reared its head at that time. So I set off um, and left South Africa and went to London and got involved in um, of all things, personal training, which was a very new concept at the time. So now it's you know something much more well-known. But through, through that, I realized the impact and the value that um, exercise and um, really stringent habits could have on people's lives. And so many years, ago, many years later, I returned to psychology when there was more scope at focusing on optimization and really focusing on taking um, healthy human beings to a, to a higher and better level. Um, and that's kind of where I ended up doing what I'm doing now, which is um, head of research at uh, Habits at Work in the United States. 
This is a topic that I'm really, really passionate about because from my past experience, I worked in companies who've had amazing cultures but had not been able to deliver the results or they've been able to deliver great results but there's high turnover because, you know, people just hate being there pretty much. So tell me a little bit about the book and what has made you guys want to come up with such a book and put this out into the world and what did you expect out of it? Um, well, when I when I moved to the United States, um, one of the reasons that that got me to move here was this research project that we had that really tried to look at wellness in a much more actuarial fashion or a much more practical um, fashion. And we developed these three models that would answer the question: What is worth doing in wellness, which is health, happiness, and financial security? And once you know what the dose value of that is, which really means, um, how can I explain? So if I, if you said you had a headache, I would uh, recommend that you perhaps take two aspirin and then your headache would go away. So what we were wondering was, is there a similar kind of dose value for habits of health and happiness like exercise or healthy eating or the amount of sleep that you would have to get on the productivity of people in the workplace. So we developed this model to try and answer that question. Once that, those questions were answered, which we could find enough credible research to build up uh, the behavioral research laboratory that we um, then developed around that. The next question was, how do you now get people to actually practice these habits? Because many of the times they would know what to do, but they wouldn't actually do it. Um, and we developed then a framework called the Four Powers Framework, which was all around designing the context around people that would encourage them to practice these habits. Because from the research, it was very, very obvious the business impact and value and outcomes you could get from people being more healthy and more happy and more financially secure within the workplace. And that really was the genesis of the book. Well, that's really important because I think, uh, uh, as you say, like there's a lot of content out there and a lot of information out there saying, oh, yes, this is important. But, you know, when you go to the businesses, they're going to ask the question, well, what's the ROI? Like, how is this actually mm -hmm. going to impact the business? Right. Because that's the terms that they're thinking. So one of the things that I actually notice in the book is that, as you say, like it's very actionable, practical tips into mm -hmm. how to use it, how to implement it in the workplace and to develop the culture. So when after publishing the book, um, what has been like the reaction that you have got uh, by reading the book or, or joining uh, your workshops? Like what's been the reaction from like business owners or managers? I think it's instilled in them um, a sense of um, comfort and acceptance around it. And it's been a very long journey for us to to have people move from being a little bit doubtful about the impact that these kinds of habits could have on companies to them moving to a space now where they are very much more accepting of it and acknowledge the fact that there, that there is, um, at least if there isn't an ROI, there is a VOI or a value of return of investment. Um, and a lot of the research that we uh, found, because we did a systematic review of the research that was available, all across the world 
to really build a case for the fact that there is uh, value in practicing these habits, not only for the individual, but for the teams and for the organization. Um, and there's enough substance in there for people to now be able to take that information and make the case to, to, to people within the business um, to um, bring that to employees and build systems around it that would allow them to practice these habits and impact the businesses more positively. Can you tell a little bit about why this work is important now? Because we've talked about a lot of things for a number of years and I see the landscape of jobs and landscape of work and businesses changing quite a bit and even in the in the you know like next five, ten years to come. So can you tell us like why now? Why is this important now? Well, I think it's always been important, but I think it's even more important now because what we call prioritizing self-care of the individual, making sure that the individual employee knows how to take care of themselves, how to bring themselves into the workspace um, in their most optimal um, state is really what you want to have no matter what kind of business you're in, whether it's manufacturing and they have to be physically strong and healthy and fit or whether it's a knowledge-based business in which their cognitive function, um, their ability to make fewer efforts, um, sorry, errors are really important. It doesn't matter which industry you're in. These are what we call foundational or pivotal habits that allow people to do their jobs better. Um, and I think that it has just become more evident in the last few years as a result of, as you say, this change um, in the workspace and, and, and in, in industries in which that is now much more evident than it was before. Well, one thing that you touched on was about the VOI, and that is something that I haven't heard anyone talk about. So can you please tell us the difference between a VOI and ROI? Well, often in the space of self-care and uh, wellness and, and, and talking about people's health and happiness, it's not always very easy to measure a direct link between things. In certain cases it is, and certain habits, certainly with exercise and with sleep, there are studies that will draw a direct line between um, the habit and the outcome of that habit and how it would impact a business. But in some cases, um, a lot of the business don't track their own productivity measures or levels within the organization in a, in a rigorous way. So it's hard to demonstrate that even though people will anecdotally or from a uh, qualitative perspective um, will tell you what it has brought to them and to their teams and to the organization. Um, and that for me is sometimes the thing that has more value and that's why we call it a value um, of return on investment that a company will take, especially for smaller companies it's obviously as important for larger companies, but they would more often have those kinds of measures in place where smaller companies or entrepreneurial firms or startups, for them, it's more important that they can almost feel or experience for themselves the difference or the change or the shift in culture or climate as a result of practicing these habits. 
Can you give us like examples and maybe case studies that you have seen of the results that um, of the companies who has implemented these practices or the habits um, and what have what have they gotten out as not just as results, but what had their be- reaction been and how long has that taken for them to even get to that place? Well, it's very interesting. It, it's it. It takes actually a lot shorter than what they expect, and sometimes even what we're ex- we're expecting. <laughs> so, and that's always the thing that surprises me, and and that I love about the work that we do. So, um, whether it is that we're working with hotel staff or um, a care center, a, a national care center, or whether we're working with uh, people who are manufacturing and have a factory floors that they have to worry about production, or whether it is we're working with an advertising and marketing company. And those are the places that we have um, uh, implemented a lot of the programs that we're doing in. They all take something away for them because we spend the time to really understand their culture, understand what it is they need, what the problems are they're trying to solve. And then as a result of this research that we've done in Brat Lab, we are able to almost prescribe the kind of habits that they would need to solve their problems or to improve the outcomes that they're trying to improve based on or in the back of this research that we've done. And again, it's it's about understanding what the problem is, how the habits can be prescribed to solve that problem, but then at the same time to move from there into almost a consulting mindset to try and figure out how do we get people in each of these organizations to practice these habits for an extended period of time because some people have heard that it takes 28 days or 21 days to form a new habit, but in fact it takes much longer. It takes an average of 66 days to form a new habit and it can take up to 200 days or 245 days to really install that in people. So you you have to be very conscious of the fact that if you don't design a workspace um, around practicing that habit, it's going to be very difficult for that to be sticky. Um, and that's where we've seen the biggest impact is when we know exactly what to prescribe as a habit and we've taken the time to develop something that suits that particular company um, and helps them implement and create um, the contexts in order for people to practice those habits over time. share a a little bit about um you know like what kind of habits has been has caused like the most impact and that has even taken people you know the people who's implementing um the habits you know by surprise because of the impact that it has had so when we looked at the habits we try to look at um the health habits that would have the highest impact on productivity Mm -hmm. um cost reduction etc and then we looked at health uh, sorry happiness habits that would have the highest impact. And then our final point was to look at financial security habits. So that could be something like debt reduction, or it could be savings, or it could be savings for retirement. 
So there are a variety of things that you could do in each of these, we call them domains, health, happiness, and security, financial security, that would have a, a larger or a lesser impact on productivity per se, which we broke up into cognitive function, error rates, uh, engagement, units per man hour. So we looked at very specific components of productivity. From a health perspective, the one that um, absolutely makes a difference across the board, both for health and happiness, is exercise. And it doesn't have to be a lot of it. It can be what we call um, sort of uh, exercise snacks. So very small amounts of exercise done more regularly can make a very big impact on cognitive function, reducing error rates, improving engagement. Um, so that is one of the core habits from a health perspective. That's very closely followed by um, teaching people habits around sleep and restoration. And that might be not only sort of sleep habits, but also how to disconnect, how to step away from being hyper-connected all the time because we are living in a world in which there is information coming at us all the time and it's very hard to step away from your emails and your text messages and and that kind of connectivity that we tend to have. But there's sufficient um, research to point to the importance of disconnecting or restoring yourself or stepping away from that hyper-connectivity um, over a period of time. So those are the two health habits that stand out uh, very much above the others. So healthy eating is really, really important, but from a um, uh, from a productivity or a cognitive function point of view, it doesn't have as much impact as the others do. But the one thing that we notice about habits is that they have kind of a domino effect. The more you do one, the more you tend to do the next one and the next one and the next one. So it's really important to have these little micro interventions and then make sure that it kind of tips over and grows into more habits or bigger habits over time. From a happiness perspective, the one that we've had the most data on um, is mindfulness practices, which could include simple things like mindful eating or just taking a moment to be present. Those kinds of things um, are really, really important. Um, and the other habit that follows that, that we found um, has the most impact is gratefulness and mm. practicing that within the workspace, uh, very much around appreciation and recognition. It has a massive effect on building trust and creating connections between people, which is very, very important. And when it came to financial security, of course, the overall stress of worrying about your finances is something that um, takes away time uh, for individuals and it impacts businesses negatively because people spend time trying to solve their financial problems at work and in, time, in, in their work hours. Um, and so we try to figure out what is the, the smallest thing that you could do that would have the most positive impact on that as a sort of a micro-intervention, and that was reducing your debt. Right. Got it. Um, in my experience, I have actually 
had challenges when I was working in the corporate world um, and when I was leading teams, my approach to leading people and leading teams had always been a very personal method. And that means I'm going to cross boundaries, which means I'm going to find out what each and every person's dreams are. Why do they come to work? Why do they wake up in the morning and why do they show up, right? I'm interested to know that. But a common approach is you don't care about any of them. You don't care, like even if they're sick, as long as you have their bum on the seat, you're happy uh-huh. about it, right? That's the common approach. And I've always uh-huh. had challenges with it because what I've, what, something that I've always thought is that when somebody comes to work, it's like the tip of the iceberg. Most of it is unseen. And if you don't address that unseen part, you're going to be very like, you're going to run into a lot of challenges in productivity and the quality of work. So I think that I think that's what you're talking about as well, which is very interesting. So the question that I have is that I've had a lot of resistance in trying to implement that because, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not the culture that we've had for many, many, many decades in the Mm -hmm. past. So Mm -hmm. how do you get on board companies and cultures and people who are of that mindset that I don't care, just show up nine to five and I'll be happy mindset? How do you get them on board? Um, Well, we often don't get them on board, to be frank with you, because those are not the ideal clients for us to work with. Um, We want to work with companies that really, um, really care about the employees because many companies will say, you know, our employees are our biggest asset and we we want to take care of them and make sure they're okay. But at the end of the day, that's, as you've mentioned, that's not necessarily even true so it may be something that they talk about but when when the rubber hits the road that's not the real issue the real issue is the bottom line or as you say just getting them in bums on seats and then you know presenteeism and absenteeism will be an issue so very often the two ways to get companies to pay attention to these things is either if they're are leaders who are enlightened and switched on enough to understand the importance of this. And the other, unfortunately, is when there are problems. Because while an organization is functioning fully and the and the leadership is not switched onto it, it's very difficult to change their minds around it. So that becomes more of an educational approach to um, expose and um uh, interpret what they're experiencing and, and bringing wisdom to that. But when they are um, experiencing problems, whether it's absenteeism or escalating sick care costs or whatever it may be, very often they're more ready to listen to that approach. Even so, in that in in that instance, it would be something that would have to be done in a very systematic and phased way to bring about. Um, a change in mindset almost around these things. So those are two very different approaches that that we have. So a lot of it could be around teaching, consulting, educating more on a leadership level to bring them around to this way of thinking, using the available research that there is and the the facts around the matter. Um, Other than that, it's usually just leadership that understands it already and conceptually agrees and wants to do something but doesn't know quite what the next step is.
I understand that this work is very important when it comes to the quality of the work that you produce, whether you're a new business or a big business, because I think the future that we're going into is going to be a lot about, you know, not the mundane task kind of jobs. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. most of them are going to be automated, but what's going to be left is a lot of the creative work. And for you to be able to do creative work, you have to be in that quality mind frame and everything that you talk about in the book and that's a point that uh, I guess uh, a lot of people miss especially coming from big corporates Mm -hmm. that this kind of segues into my next question which is something that you talk about in the book is about having a competitive advantage using habits like this how Mm -hmm. does this give that competitive advantage especially for businesses that is new or or changing their direction to fitting to um you know like in a in a challenging market how does that work well as you rightly say i mean i think a lot of businesses are still functioning on the industrial age format um and looking at people as cogs in a wheel or um you know, machinery in a way, like, you know, bring the people in, we need things done, they're going to produce things and so on. But the shift is happening not only from this industrial perspective to a more knowledge-based industry. In general, we're also having a generational shift, um, which is compounding the need for companies to approach things very, very differently and thinking about how to create and humanize the workspace in a very, very different way. And part of the approach that we take, which is, which are these habits that you would have to practice that creates a foundation for you to arrive as a much more highly functioning human being so that you can do this knowledge work. Um, And also that, that the new generation um, gets what they need because they want connection and balance and health and, and happiness in their lives. They are they're not prepared to give up, I think, as much as previous generations may have given up in terms of their personal lives and their lives in general. So these habits become incredibly important to consider and practice given this shift that you've that you've noticed for yourself within the industry and within the generations. It's so funny when you start talking about the generation. I think that's a whole other conversation that we can go into um, because there's massive difference. Like when I talk to my dad and how he's been in his job for like 30 years and (laughs) doing the same thing and he looks at me and like thinking, what are you doing? (laughs) What's the big deal? You go to work, you do the job and come home. No, that's not how it works anymore. No, no. Um, I'm sure we've got different reasons why we do everything. Like if you look at different uh, different generations, but as I said, it's a different conversation for another day. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, the reason why I'm asking this next question is because we've got a lot of um, people in the audience who are either starting off new businesses or mm-hmm. s- trying to scale up using a team. So if you are if you don't have a team already, which means a culture is not already built, how mm-hmm. can we use these habits um, mm-hmm. from the get-go to create that culture um, and to make sure that it is in place so that you are more agile and you've got that competitive edge? I mean, that's a great question because that's one of the, the conversations I consistently have with companies, that if you don't 
um, actively think about and create your culture, it will emerge whether you are paying attention to it or not. Um, and these habits are a really great way of beginning to help you create the culture that you want within your business. And this is kind of where we get to the four powers framework that I spoke about earlier, which we also talk about in the book, which is context design. So how do you design the culture and the context in which these habits can be practiced? Um, and the four powers uh, framework looks at four different contexts. So it looks at the individual, so self. It looks at teams or groups, which we call social. It looks at spaces, which is the actual physical space in which you are working or not, if you are a virtual company or people are working virtually or a combination of the two. And then systems, which are the policies, procedures, rules, regulations, permissions that come with that. So when you are designing culture, it is really important to look at each of these aspects, to look at the context of the self, so what is happening for the individual, what motivates them, what do they need to learn, uh, in which way can you build their confidence around things, what kind of barriers are in their way for practicing these habits, and what are the temptations that will draw them away from that. And the same goes for the social context, so in terms of a team or a group what are the competencies they require, what motivates them, what gets in their way, and what tempts them away from practicing these habits. And the same goes for the spaces, and the same goes for the systems. So when you are designing a culture or you're thinking about instilling some of these habits within a culture, you have to consider all of those aspects. So the best way to do it is to pick one particular habit that you think is going to get you the outcome that you really need. So let's assume that that might be um, exercise and some form of meditation, let's say. So if you want to sort of microdose people on that with exercise, you could have them, uh, you can design the space that allows people to do more standing than sitting or allows them to take breaks um, every hour or so and change their physical body or position because that's really what, what is required to keep cognitive function going. Where with something like uh, meditation, it might be creating a space or a room or building into a meeting agenda, um, a one minute um, uh, of quiet or meditation before or after a meeting where everyone can just sit quietly and contemplate or use that time to express gratefulness within a meeting or acknowledgement or appreciation of people in the room. So you can actually build it into the, into the culture itself from the beginning by structuring the, the policies, the rules, the regulations, the meeting agendas, or physically creating the space um, and allowing people to use a space in a very particular way that encourages that habit or instilling it in teams by through competition or through uh, using the theory of social contagion um, or working with individuals and making sure that they get properly trained or they have enough knowledge around these things to help them navigate some of the, the, the temptations or the barriers that may come in their way um, to not practice some of these habits. So um, it's really about thinking about your culture, what you want to instill in that culture, and then building it in from the get-go. What do you see as like the common 
misunderstandings or myths that people have about building a great culture? Um, I think the first thing is that it takes time. Um, so it's not something that is accidental. It is something that you have to almost constantly do. So you have to have a clear plan for it at the beginning, and then you have to constantly build into it. it and the minute you forget about it or you leave it, again, it'll emerge by itself because a culture is really just a collection of the habits that people practice within the workspace. That's all it is. I can walk into any company and I can sit there for a half an hour and watch what people do and I'll tell you what the culture is because I watch the kind of things that they consistently do over a period of time. So I think that's the that's the, the major thing is that that many companies um, forget how instrumental they are in proactively building a culture and continue to build that culture over time. Switching gears a little bit, um, to the rest of your work that you have done for many, many, many years. Because um, I do understand the fact that you've been doing this for a number of decades before this book was published. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about, like, what is your drive to be doing the work you're doing? Well, I mean, I've always been fascinated by human behavior and I've um, I've taken two pathways, in fact. So, my main driver in terms of my career has been to try and understand how to make the workplace a place in which people want to be, contribute their best, and have an enormous amount of fun doing that. Because I do believe that if you're aligned to that and the value, your values and the values of the organization are aligned, that's where everyone wins. Um, on, a, on a separate pathway, on a personal pathway, one of the um, uh, the work that I'm doing there is more around diversity, culture, um, uh, as far as um, hate victimization within the workplace as it's linked to conflict management and diversity and doing that kind of work because that's a little bit, uh, I suppose, a little bit more on the how do we fix a problem side where the work that we're doing within Habits at Work is more about how do we optimize the workspace from, from the beginning. Tell me a little bit more about hate victimization. So, you know, having grown up in South Africa, there I obviously grew up in a in a country and a culture and a society that uh, was very very strange and very um, unhealthy, I suppose, when it comes to how they treated uh, people in the country itself. So that heightened my awareness around those things very, very much. So. When I began to do a lot of my research, it was around how to have people um, increase tolerance and be less prejudiced, and how do we how do we work on stopping people from going down that road that leads to a point where we need to do things like conflict management and diversity training, and of course, with the transition in South Africa between the National Party and the African National Congress. Uh, the negotiation uh, process that they went through was really, really fascinating. And the restorative justice approach after that for me was personally very, very intriguing. 
And I thought that would be something that would be very useful, not only in communities and society in general, but in the workplace as well, because I think in our workplaces, we are becoming much more diverse. Um, people are moving around internationally much more, uh, working with different cultures, whether that is um, like physically or virtually. Um, and many of the multinational companies that we deal with, um, that is something that they come up with a lot of the time because you will have people from the West and the East working together or, you know, people from Europe and South America or from the Middle East trying to work together. So, and the cultures are very, very different and the habits that they practice within those cultures are very different. So for me, it was just very interesting in terms of making the workplace this this uh this culture and space in which you can do your best work, that becomes something that I think is interesting and valuable for me personally. Mm. Well, when you were doing this research, were you still in South Africa or were you in the US? Uh, no, we started the research uh, around hate victimization specifically in, the, in South Africa because at the time, um, despite the fact that the constitution was uh, very progressive, there wasn't actually a hate crime law or bill. So um, if someone was a victim of hate of hate crime or victimized, there was no way to record or report that within the structure of the criminal justice system. So together with the University of South Africa, we developed a monitoring system for that so that we could collect data for the government to help them have a case for developing a bill and then eventually a law, which now I think is almost in its final stages, um, in order for us to be able to monitor that more uh, accurately and also to be able to know what to do with those incidences going forward. So subsequently, um, I think for me personally in the world, there seems to have been a slight shift to the right and there seems to be more of these incidences happening internationally. Um, so there's there's been a surge of that kind of thinking and behavior coming out, which um, is obviously very disconcerting. But there's part of me that feels that if we could grapple with this problem of hate victimization and understand behavior and be able to work on changing behavior, um, and knowing the mechanisms for that, it could be helpful not only in that space, but it could be incredibly helpful within the workspace as well. So it's sort of an extreme case of learning so that I can take that information and bring it into the workspace and, and implement it there as well. Well, um, talking about, uh, you know, working with people's diverse cultures, I think um, we are more and more becoming aware of it, um, like even here in Australia, because we are getting a lot of people coming into the country, but without realizing that they are all coming from various different cultures. And as you said, they have got very different habits and ways of going, you know, like do, doing things and the way that they look at things and what you get offended on, on what you don't get offended on. So there's a lot of massive learning curve. And even even in the business world like we are now going into a culture where um whether you are working with people from different cultures within the country or you are even hiring people from different countries which we do a lot which we call uh -huh. outsourcing in various different uh -huh. ways something that a lot of people still don't understand is 
the impact that it makes in not understanding how different cultures work mm-hmm. um, because they bring in very different ideas to the workplace. Can you please speak to that? Well, I, th- I think from our perspective, it comes back to um, understanding and practicing some of the habits of tolerance around that um, and instilling some of those values, which I think very much lives in the domain of happiness because there are many habits in there that I think can be successfully used to encourage acceptance of diversity or of difference between people. So when it comes to things like acts of kindness or gratefulness or even mindfulness practice, so many of the the habits of happiness um, I think align very well to the the habits of, of tolerance and acceptance and diversity and conflict management. Because if you are constantly in that space where you're practicing many of these, um, these habits like um, generosity and acts of kindness and mindfulness, I think that you're, you are less likely to be reactive and more likely to, to have more tolerance or at least more self-regulation in your own particular um, case around how you react to people around you that happen to be different to you. So that is how I think the 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 ideas in the book will lend itself to the habits of tolerance and um, acceptance of other people more readily. go through personally in bringing this work into life? I, I haven't really ex, um, experienced many hurdles per se because it's usually something that is, um, when it comes to the diversity work, it is usually something that comes in when there is an awareness around it and the company has been struggling with it for some time and it really is, Uh, It has to do with bringing them to a space in which everyone can have a conversation around it. So it's really that part that is probably a little bit more challenging than than, uh, waiting for people to um, invite you in to do that because they know there's a problem. They just don't know what to do about it. So that's probably the, 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 the biggest part of the challenge around that is just to get people around the table and have those discussions and find uh, simple and easy ways for people to practice some of these habits and shift the culture over time. Mm, I think that is key because, you know, if it's quite complex, then of course there's going to be a lot of resistance around implementing them. But um, I think that's one of the things that I really like about the book, which is this simple actionable Mm. steps that you can take to implement in regardless of what size your company is and to change the culture around to get a better result. Exactly. And I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the last um, sort of 25 years in this field is Actually, less is more, and I and I will often be caught saying to to clients and to and to the people that I work with is just make it as easy and as simple as possible to do one little thing. Like focus on the micro. Don't worry about the big picture. Think long term, and then 
do micro little changes over a long period of time. And that's really what I think um, gets you the best results. Because if you try and make too big a change, too sweeping a change, um, the chances of you meeting with resistance or overwhelming people is much higher. And that's exactly what you're trying to avoid. Mm. Let's try to make a four-year-old understand, hey? Absolutely. And, just, <laughs> and, you know, people have full lives. People, there are many things demanding our attention all the time. And if you, if you push too much at people, it's just, it's going to backfire on you. So start with little things and just over time, build them up. And it is amazing how far you can get if you just exercise a little bit of patience around that, that kind of thing. Mm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so you have been doing this work for a few decades now, as you mentioned. What mm -hmm. would you say is the best advice you have been given in your journey? Um, the best advice is just keep going. Don't don't lose sight of it. You know, find something that you are passionate about and do that thing and do it over and over again. Um. <laughs> And so, but the funny thing is, that's also the worst advice. <laughs> How so? Uh, because sometimes you, sometimes it's just about understanding the situation well enough to know when to let it go. Um, and that's always an interesting dynamic for me, that there is a time when you have to be resilient and show grit and move on through a thing. And sometimes you have to have the wisdom to just like leave it and step away from it for a while. Um, so it's a kind of a double-edged sword, I think, in a way. Yeah, I think all advice is like that because, you know, there are <laughs> times true. it will work, there are times, <laughs> nope, bad idea. That, that's true, that's true. Um, okay, so do you want to, well, I was going to ask you what the worst advice is. Do you want to stick to that one or is there a worst advice you've been given? Um, no, I think that's that's probably, as I think I'll stick with that one. <laughs> Okay, well, this is a question that I ask all guests that uh, who come on the show, um, which is if you could go back to the beginning of your journey, maybe when uh -huh. you were studying psychology or wherever, what uh -huh. would you change about how you did things? Um, I don't think I would change how I did things. I think I might have just gotten out of my own way a little bit more. Um yeah, I think that, that sometimes um, what we get caught up in doing things too perfectly or being too dogmatic about things. I think if I had to change anything, I would probably want to change that. Mm. I think that's a great message for everybody. Get out of your own way. <laughs> yep, and don't try and be a perfectionist. It's, uh, the return on investment on that one is not great. Aim for X. <laughs> Aim for excellence, not for perfection. What is one thing that you have learned about yourself, whether it is through publishing the book or the work that you're doing right now or what you have done in the past, but what's one thing that you have learned about yourself? Um, I think I've learned about myself that I, that I have an amazing... Um, amount of resilience and drive and focus but at the same time I think I've learned that sometimes it's important to be a bit more selfish um, I think that's um, for me personally I have a tendency of um, 
giving too much to my work. So, you know, being too available, uh, being too much there. So over time, I've learned to be a little bit more, I suppose some people would call it work-life balance. Um, for me, it's more of a, about a fluidity, about having a life that includes your work and not having your work life uh, be your life, I suppose. <laughs> when to say no, right? When to say no, you know, having having um, having work contribute to your life is a really, really important thing rather than take away from your life. Hanley, it has been lovely having you on the show. I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of everything that you've shared and uh, I'm sure they're going to go and get a copy of the books uh, very soon. For those of them who are in the audience who would love to get in, get hold of you and your work and get to know more about you, where can they find you? Uh, well, they can find me in several places. They can find me at habitsatwork.com. Uh, they can also contact me through the Brat Lab uh, website, which is B-R-A-T-L-A-B.com, Brat Lab, Behavioral Research and Applied Technology Laboratory. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, <laughs> or they can reach out to me directly um, at Hunley at HabitsAtWork.com. Um, and I'm very happy to share a chapter of the book with them if they wish or um, anything that uh, would would make a difference to their lives and thank you very much for having me on the show awesome thank you so much you're very very welcome well there you go folks that is our episode for today I hope you got lots out of it and some of those points that Hanley shared definitely took me by surprise for the fact that they are so simple but but we still ignore them so i hope you got lots out of it as always go check out the show notes because i have summarized all the key points that we talked about so even if you didn't take any notes don't worry about it just go check out the notes and um, and also i have put down all the links that you can go and get in touch with hanley and her work and also make sure that you buy the book because it is definitely a great read so until i meet you next time Keep at it in your extraordinary journey.